Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen. I'm the managing editor at SlashFilm.com, and joining me today, he is the man who played Dr. Max Milkman in The West Wing, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing very good, David. I, I really appreciate that reference to The West Wing because... You know, I, I worked with a lot of friends on that show. One of the people I worked on with that show, uh, one of the kind of execs supervising the show at that time was Peter Noah. And starting this week, starting Monday, I am working with dear Peter Noah again, who's one of the great, great minds in television. Uh, I'm so looking forward to that. Excellent. Oh, well, you oh. know, I, I was watching The West Wing this week, actually. I was revisiting some of the old episodes. Season 2 yes. in particular is my favorite, although uh, you were in Season 5. Uh, and by the way, are you Milkman or Milkman? Oh, David, I don't even remember the part, <laughs> except I do remember that the director, again, one of my, my friends, he told me, do whatever you want to make Alice and Jenny laugh. So I remember I kind of dove into the aquarium tank. Nice. I, I remember some, but I don't remember my, I told you before, actors never know really their names in shows because we never say our names. Right, right, right. Well, in, in any case, uh, it, it's a great show. And I was thinking to myself, you know, I bet Stephen Tobolowsky's been on this show at some point and uh, <laughs> pleased to find that that is in fact the case. Uh, um, yes, yes. It was good times, good times. So Stephen, I was listening to last week's episode, episode 40, Contagion, uh, which oh, was a very uh, a moving... No, last, last week was Man in the Closet. Man. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Man in the Closet. 39 was Contagion. It's so and, easy uh, to forget. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I listened to both episodes. Uh, they're, they're equally powerful in my mind. That's why I got them confused, Stephen. Um, I see. And uh, I, I was thinking to myself, wow, that guy really has an amazing memory for when he was a little kid. Uh, and uh, how is it that that's the case, Stephen? How do you remember so many things from when you were like five years old? I, I don't know. I just read a scientific article that certain people have uh, a chemical in their hippocampus, hypocampus. It was some brain that helps them retain childhood memories. But I, I also got uh, an email yesterday from dear, my dear friend Claire Richards in Utah who, of course, is one of the Miss Hard to Gets and Miss Hard to Get, who played Picking Up Pawpaws uh, when, when she was eight. And she said, how do you remember your childhood? I can't remember anything. And in honor of Claire and in honor of all my friends from Oak Cliff, here is another story from the deep, dark recesses of my mind. For all you folks out in Oak Cliff, see if you remember this one. It was around 1957, and I was five years old. My brother Paul was nine. Paul was my hero. He was the resident expert in almost every field. He was the athlete of the family. He was the amateur magician who made coins appear from thin air. But mainly, he was the scientist. Now, one of the first areas where children actively encounter science is weather. And it's understandable. It's easy to see. It's all around you. It happens every day. And if you are in Texas, you get it all. Wind, heat, storms, hail, sleet, ice, even occasionally snow. Paul got a little blue book called Everyday Weather and How It Works. And he suggested that the two of us should study weather using this book as our guide. The first thing it said we needed was a rain gauge. Mom took us to the hobby store. The man behind the counter told us we had two choices in rain gauges, one for 50 cents 
and one for six dollars, which seemed like a lot of money considering a bag of army men only cost 68 cents. Paul asked him what the difference was, and the man said the six dollar one was a lot better because it's what was called a graduated rain gauge, and it was much better for exact calculations. Paul said we should probably get the better one. Science required accuracy. And to her everlasting credit, Mom never rolled her eyes, never argued. She was always one to encourage her children in any dream that didn't involve catching snakes. She pulled out her wallet and bought us the good one. On the way home, the skies were darkening. I was excited. It looked like we picked the perfect day to buy a graduated rain gauge. The first drop started to fall. We set the gauge up on a box on the patio. The spring shower began, and we were amazed that our gauge said we were getting seven inches of rain every five minutes. We had accidentally put the rain gauge under the roof gutter, illustrating the scientific principle that a gauge is only as good as the man using it. Paul carefully moved the box and the gauge to the center of the patio, and suddenly our results became far less dramatic. Our total rainfall dropped to less than a fraction of a fraction of an inch, proving that in Texas the difference between a drizzle and the apocalypse was only about three feet. Paul wrote the results of that first rainfall down in a notebook where all weather information was to be kept. It's interesting that even at that early age, there was an understanding that an experiment is not an experiment unless you wrote down what you found. No one told us to do this. Writing down findings was in every monster movie we ever saw. Men in white coats would inject a man with alligator blood, expose him to gamma rays, and write down the findings of the man's slow transition into becoming a gator. These movies never really discussed the importance of turning men into alligators, but they did have scenes where the head scientist, usually over dinner with a glass of wine in his hand, would lecture his guest on the importance of his work to mankind. My brother and I got the message that taking accurate notes was important, regardless of the value of the enterprise. One Saturday, Paul was playing football with his friends, and I pulled out the weather book and started thumbing through the pages on my own. I looked at the pictures of children studying the skies and taking notes. There were drawings of happy boys and girls standing by their homemade weather station while their mother and father looked on with pride. I was inspired. I needed to make my contribution to the project. I decided on my own to build a wind detector out of Pillsbury cinnamon muffin icing tins. I call it a wind detector and not a wind gauge because there was no gauge to it. <laughs> the plan was to connect four empty icing tins by stiff horizontal rods in a north-south-east-west configuration, then set it upright so if the wind blew, it would turn and we would know definitively that the wind was blowing. The first problem I encountered was that I mangled the four icing tins when I poked holes in them to connect them to the horizontal rods, which happened to be 10-inch Tinker Toy sticks. I connected the four Tinker Toy sticks to a round orange Tinker Toy. This would be my central hub. And then I put another long Tinker Toy stick into the hub going downward into whatever become the base. Oh, oh dear. The base. That was tough. I quickly learned the important scientific lesson that in this world, things that spin get all the attention. But it's the base that makes everything work. Any base I came up with 
not only had to hold the wind detector upright, but also had to allow the icing tins to turn freely in the breeze. Now, that was a tall order. Eventually, I decided to use a small Coca-Cola bottle. I set the central long tinker toy into the bottle, stood back, and the entire contraption fell over. I was disheartened. I had to wait for Paul's help. When he came home, I told him about my project. I showed him the wind detector and the Coca-Cola bottle. After seriously examining my work from every angle, he nodded and said the project could be salvaged if we could find out a way to secure the Coke bottle. His solution was simple and elegant. We would use our barbecue pit. A note of explanation, there was a brief period in the architectural styles of suburban homes in Oak Cliff, Texas in the 1950s that brick barbecues were built in as a part of the patio wall. They stood about six feet tall and were never used for cooking. Sometimes they were used to drape wet towels on. Sometimes the family cat would sit on top of them. Salt maps and science projects for school were put on them to dry overnight. That was about it. Almost everybody I knew back then had one of these on their patio, and just about everyone I knew had some child who broke an arm or a leg jumping off of them. I was dared once by neighborhood boys to jump off when I was pretending to be Superman. I was lucky that I only injured my belief system, that a cape and a positive attitude were enough to make me fly. Our barbecue's primary role was as a fort when we played cowboys and Indians. But there's a time when children must set aside childish things. And now is time for senseless games to be replaced by science. Paul was studying the barbecue's two heavy iron grills that had already become an interesting experiment in the various stages of rust and decay. He figured that a Coke bottle could stand on the lower briquette level and be held in place by the heavy upper rusty grills. He gave it a try. It seemed to work. The four tin cups stuck out of the grill waiting to catch a breeze. We put the rain gauge beside it and suddenly in a blinding moment of transformation, our fort became a brick weather station with a chimney. We stood back and watched. The tin cups didn't move. Even though I was certain there was a breeze, Paul said not to worry. The detector was well made, but the brick chimney of the barbecue was probably blocking the wind. The next thing our weather station needed was far more complex. We needed to know changes in barometric pressure. For that, we would have to delve into the new scientific realm of chemistry. Paul bought some deadly chemicals that were routinely sold to children for science projects in that area. It was something like cobalt chloride that would turn pink when a rainstorm was coming in blue if the sun was coming out. Paul drew a picture on one of Dad's white shirt cardboards. The book recommended that you draw either a picture of a dog or a boy or a girl in a raincoat, and then you paint the chemicals on key parts of the drawing so that the ears of the dog or the raincoat and the boots would change colors in the weather. We hung Paul's picture up in the kitchen by the stove where Mom was eternally cooking. We were always checking it. If Mom was busy making spaghetti or pot roast, we would just yell out, has it changed colors yet? And mom would shout back, no, still blue. I wanted to make a weather picture that was far more dramatic than Paul's. I used half a bottle of the chemical to paint a vast landscape of mountains and trees and a boy and a girl walking on a road. Actually, I had copied the picture from the Everyday Weather book. 
But my idea was that the entire landscape would change colors as the weather turned. But the massive amounts of wet chemicals ran together, making the picture incomprehensible and the cardboard start to dissolve. In the end, you couldn't make out the boy or the girl, the hill or the valley. It looked like a map of the old Soviet Union. What made the picture useless as a storm detector was that part of the mess was pink and part of it stayed blue, so it was as confused about the weather as I was. But I still hung it up next to Paul's picture. As time went on, we stopped checking the pictures and the wind detector for any prognostications. We were learning another principle of science. Passion alone is never enough to get anything done, except maybe eating ice cream. Everything else also requires persistence, which is nothing more than passion over time. Children rarely have persistence. They can't. They don't understand time. Children are all future and no past. The side effects of having no past is that it tends to make one both fearless and fickle. Paul and I moved on to other fascinations. The next science we took up was far more vast and mysterious than the prospects of rain. It was the universe. One of the great treasures we had as children was a little telescope. It was black and brass, and it slid out in three sections. Paul explained that each section increased magnification. I took it out one night. I stood on the driveway. I looked into the sky. I picked out a star, and I decided I would try the three sections individually to test their respective powers. I never got past the first section. I was in awe. I was transported into another world. I saw a star in my eyepiece. It was gigantic. I saw that it was round. It was not five-pointed like the gold stars we got in school. And the surface of the star was a blur of blue gas with what looked like craters of fire. I ran inside to my bedroom. I jumped into my bed and pulled out a little book Dad had given me to draw in, and I began to take notes. I wrote about my star in the dark using a flashlight. We always have more faith in things we discover in the dark. It was in the dark I first held Beth's hand. It was in the dark I heard Van Cliburn and felt connected to some universal truth through the beauty he created. It was in the dark I saw Anne's face in the tomato garden. And it was in the dark, actually in my sleep, I had two dreams that seemed to offer mysterious guidelines for life that I clung to for years. One, my grandmother Lena telling me that all life was falling up. And the other, my friend Didi telling me that I had to let my garden go to seed before I was to live in reality. It was in the dark with a small flashlight. I drew a picture of my star. I noted the color and the locations of the craters. I speculated they were caused by collisions with meteors or other planets. Using the star book Paul had, I looked up the color blue and saw that it meant it was a very hot young star. I estimated the star's age with a one and many, many zeros. I noted the star's temperature also with a one and even more zeros. Looking back, I could say conclusively that writing zeros was always a lot more fun than writing exponents. For the next several nights, I went out to make more findings with my telescope. And I ran into the first problem of studying the night sky. There are a lot of stars up there, and I had no way of knowing which star was my star. 
I became very sad. I felt like I had let down myself. I had let down the science of astronomy. And most importantly, I had let down my star. What importance did my little star have except in being observed by me? And now I couldn't find it. I stood on the driveway looking up in the general vicinity. I looked at what I thought was my star on the first level of magnification. And amazingly, there it was. The same blue hazy star with the craters of fire. Now I felt like I was born to science. I not only had the desire and the work ethic, but I also had luck on my side. I felt masterful. I decided to branch out and explore more stars, and I moved my gaze to the right and landed on another sphere, and it looked exactly the same as my star. It was blue, it was fiery, it had craters, and I moved my gaze to another star. It was the same too. Oh dear. Oh dear. Even at the tender age of five, I knew something was wrong. In my brief experience of the world, I knew that sameness was a condition created by mankind. It was the row of windows in a skyscraper. It was teachers all having the same pencil sharpened to the same degree of sharpness. It was students arranged in lines according to their heights and seated in desks that were all the same. Sameness was not a trait of the natural world. Frogs, snakes, dogs, and cats, they're all completely different. Trees and flowers were organized by their variations, not prized for their sameness. Stars belong to the natural world. I needed consultation with someone wiser. I went to Paul. Paul left his homework and came outside. He took the telescope and looked at the stars under the first degree of magnification. He looked at some other stars, and then he adjusted the scope to the second and the third levels of magnification. He looked at the sky with the scope fully extended. He stopped. He closed the scope and handed it back to me. He thought carefully, and he said, Stevie, what you were looking at wasn't a star at all. The telescope was just out of focus. You were looking at a blur. You can't see stars even up close at full magnification with this telescope. They're too far away. You could barely see stars with the two-inch scope of Palomar. And that's a reflector. It's a lot stronger than this one. I said, so the craters and the fire and the color? Paul shook his head seriously and thought, even at the age of nine, he would never think of kicking anyone in their dream. He said, Stevie, the findings are inconclusive. That's what astronomers would say. I walked back to my bedroom and turned on the light. I sat on the edge of my bed. I took out my star notebook and wrote in capital letters, findings inconclusive, or whatever version of that word I came up with on the walk down the hallway. I realized now that even though my findings were based on an out-of-focus blur, several of my conclusions were correct. I deduced that stars were made of fire and were spherical. That was right. If I knew how to chart the sky and the location, that was right also. As to colors and craters of the surface, as to the age and temperature and all those zeros, I'm afraid they'll have to remain in the vast limbo of findings inconclusive. But it all brings up the question of how important is it to be right or even more troubling is it possible to be right at all? How many times do we assume we know the real thing 
And if we just had a different perspective, we'd know we've been basing our beliefs on a blur, on a smear of light that we called a star and gave a name. Perhaps science is not truth at all, but just an alternate point of view. For years, we were taught that a spider spins a new web every day and that certain threads are covered with a sticky substance to catch its lunch. The spider only puts the substance on certain strands so it can move more easily and quickly across the web and not get stuck. That was true until a few years ago, when another group of scientists wondered if they'd been operating under the wrong point of view. We had always looked at the web as if we were people, and we looked at it a little as if we were spiders. But we never looked at the web as if we were insects, the spider's prey. Insects have a different system of vision than people and different from spiders. Insects see a different spectrum of light than we do. These scientists decided to study the web of a spider using an insect's ocular system. And what they found was amazing. Insects could not see the web at all. The strands vanished, except for the parts of the web that were coated with sticky stuff. They caught and reflected the sunlight. The scientists were taken aback when they saw that the spiders were not leaving some strands uncoated so they could navigate their webs. They left the strands uncoated because they were painting with sunlight. The strands that had the sticky stuff, when hit by the sun, when viewed through the ocular system and the light spectrum visible to an insect, took on the outline of flower petals. With the body of the spider in the center of the web becoming the pistol or the center of the flower. It was not science. It was art. And perhaps something more. Remember, the spider has different eyes than an insect. It sees a different world. It's painting something it doesn't know, that it can't see, and can only comprehend for itself as a potential dinner. It recreates this painting over and over again. If the spider succeeds and creates the illusion of a flower, she'll catch a moth and will live. So the finer artist survives. Maybe the connection between the spider and things it cannot know and cannot see is not very different at all from me and my telescope. There may have been more truth in my looking at the stars than we suspected. Maybe the real question is to ask, why did it make me so happy to take notes in the dark? I think it's easy to forget what it was like being five years old. Things mattered so much, things hurt so deeply. Loves were very powerful. It's an unfortunate fact that love is not a constant. It's often redefined by time and distance. Great expanses of time occasionally magnify, but more often diminish the loves we felt as children, and it can seem trivial to us now, but it wasn't. I made my first proposal of marriage when I was five. I asked Alice Nell Allen to marry me, and I meant it. Alice Nell lived down the street. I'll admit I was partially in love with her because she wore this pretty flannel shirt with wildflowers on it, 
and partially because I thought her middle name was Snail. Alice Snail, Alan, and I thought snails were very wonderful. And I gave her a mimosa blossom off of our tree and kissed her on the cheek, and I still remember the warmth of that cheek on my lips. I have no doubt it was love. And to tell you the truth, I think the reason why I was so happy with our new telescope and to make notes about my star in the dark was that I was falling in love with science. I had just seen the original Frankenstein. I was probably four. I wasn't terrorized or traumatized. On the contrary, I was desperate to grow up to be like Baron von Frankenstein. I wanted the lab. I wanted the slab. I wanted the lightning and the thunder. I wanted body parts in jars on my workbench. But most importantly, I wanted that Jacob's Ladder. That was that crazy piece of equipment that looked like big television rabbit ears antenna with sparks flying back and forth. I never knew what it did. I still don't know what it does, but I still want it. After seeing Frankenstein, there was no turning back. I was obsessed with being a scientist. Luckily, my big brother Paul recognized this and was more than willing to be my mentor. The weather station was just the beginning. Any time I saw a monster movie, I wanted to be that kind of scientist. I saw Godzilla, loved it, loved him. I wanted to be a dinosaur scientist. I read a book called All About Dinosaurs, and Paul and I hunted for fossils, and I made a brontosaurus out of clay. I saw X the Unknown with radioactive killer mud, and I wanted to study rocks. I started a collection. Almost nothing rivaled my rocks. Paul showed me where he found petrified wood by the creek. I would save up my birthday money to buy a piece of rose quartz from the Health and Science Museum at Fair Park. I even bought a piece of uranium. Yes, back in the late 50s, rock shops had no compunction selling radioactive material to the public. Paul brought home a microscope. I looked at our creek water with a well slide under high magnification, and I was a goner. It was so beautiful. Not the thought of all those horrible things living in the nasty, nasty, snake-infested water near us, but the clear point of view that life could be unexpected. It could be anywhere. Consequently, every tree, every pond had to be treated with respect, and you also had to keep up with your tetanus shots. I wasn't faithful to one science. I would do them all. When you're five, you're a passion looking for a place to happen. I remember looking out our patio window at my wind detector in the barbecue pit, standing, still motionless, but I felt such pride. I felt truly this was the path a genius like Baron von Frankenstein must have taken. One Sunday afternoon, I was at my uncle Jaime's house, and my aunt Hermine asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. I said with absolute certainty, a scientist. She smiled and asked me what kind of scientist. I said, Probably rocks, maybe dinosaur scientist, or even a herbabologist. The last one was not a real scientist, but I didn't know it. It was just a name I thought I heard when I was watching Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom when I was eating a corned beef sandwich. The show was about snakes, and while I was munching on my dill pickle, I heard this name, and the idea stuck in my head that maybe I wanted to spend my life studying poisonous snakes, a worthy pursuit to be sure. Life is funny in that we often get what we wish for, but in packages we don't recognize. It was probably only a year later that my neighbor, Billy Hart, asked me if I wanted to form the Dangerous Animals Club, where one of our missions was to capture the four deadly snakes of Texas. I joined with a passion, 
and after a couple weeks of being in the Dangerous Animals Club and several near misses with excruciating death, my love and serious pursuit of herbobology ended with me standing in a field crying and swinging an angry water moccasin over my head wondering what I was supposed to do when I let go. My love of herbobology turned out not to be the dead-end career path that rock collecting or dinosaur hunting turned out to be. One summer, we took a car trip to True, Pennsylvania to visit my mom's family. Our Uncle Ben set up an old canvas tent from the Army alongside of the house for us to play in. We started to play a kind of tag where the tent was the base and you were safe if you ran inside. Paul stopped me in the middle of the game with a brainstorm. He said we were missing a real opportunity. He said, why don't we turn the tent into a snake tent and charge admission like at the fair? I was dumbstruck. It was a money-making scheme. I had never been a part of a cash business before, and this one sounded brilliant. The snake tent. I was imagining that if this took off, I could make enough money to buy another piece of uranium. We put up a sign. Snake tent. Admission one dime. Surprisingly, Paul came to me to be the reptile expert. Paul was my assistant and made the snakes to my specifications out of colored clay provided by our Ann Esther. I would order them around as if I were Tim Gunn on Project Runway and said, Oh, the head on this one has to be bigger. Triangular head on that one, it's poisonous. Uh, This one is a constrictor, needs a bigger body. The biggest problem we faced wasn't creating the exhibit, but was the tent itself. The hot, humid Pennsylvania summer multiplied by the tent material made of wax canvas created the internal temperatures of a Dutch oven. We could have baked potatoes in there. The result was that the clay snakes were always melting and needed constant re-rolling. The fangs fell off, had to be carefully reattached. We had to take oxygen breaks every few minutes, leaving the snakes unattended only to melt again. We worked hard for that dime. Unfortunately, the novelty of the snake tent didn't catch on with the imagination of the town of Troop. The only customers we had were Uncle Ben, Aunt Esther and Granny, and of course Mom and Dad. Each had to pay. No family discounts. And Mom had to pay for each repeated visit. For the price of admission, you got to go inside and begin the excruciating process of being broiled alive. You could look at the coiled mounds of melting clay with index cards, with names and animal facts that were both incredibly fictitious. Paul would ask me as the snake expert, what's this one? And I would say, that's the puff attitude found in Africa, very deadly. Paul would write it on a card and move to the next blob and say, and this one? I would examine it and say, that's the California cobra, found only in Asia, right extremely dangerous. Next, anaconda, biggest snake in the world, can eat a goat whole, and so forth. I've not mentioned the smell inside the tent. It was indescribable. It wasn't just a stink. It was a hot stink. Mixing melting clay and melting wax add to it human smell and the smell of old people, and you're on the right track. Had there been any oxygen in there, I'm sure the entire tent would have exploded. Our Aunt Helen told us years later that grass never grew back on that patch of backyard where the snake tent stood. Sidebar. What makes the snake tent truly noteworthy is that that 70 cents 
that Paul and I took in that day was the only money I ever made on science in my life. Last year, I visited Dallas, and my brother Paul called me up and said he got a ticket to go with him to hear Dr. Steven Weinberg lecture on the existence of dark matter. Yes, we both still love science, just more of the theoretical variety, less clutter, no trips to the hobby store. We drove out to the University of Dallas. The lecture was very interesting. It was about the mysterious, invisible substance that physicists think make up most of the universe. They are apparently building a giant particle accelerator in Europe where photons and neutrons are shot at one another at close to speeds of light, hoping of creating a collision where matter and energy coexist and a camera can catch the blur of the result. The answer could be nothing, or it could be as significant as an explanation at the beginning of time. You never know. I took notes, just like I learned when I was five. Science is not science unless you write down what you find. Paul sat next to me. He has a huge beard now, flecked with gray. He spent most of his adult life as a physician and had just retired. Afterwards, surprisingly, on the walk back to the car, Paul told me about a regret he had had his entire life. According to Dr. Weinberg's definition, regret could also qualify as dark matter where invisible energy from the present tries to change the nature of events from the past. In the car on the way home, Paul told me his story. It's a story he never told me, but I remember the day clearly, and I'm going to tell it to you, only I can tell it from my point of view. It happened April 1957. I was five. It was the year where we learned all about weather, and I wrote down about my star in the dark. It was a few months after my schoolmate Duane talked to me about Santa Claus and the nature of human belief. The world was opening up. In less than two months, I was going to be six. I had just proposed to Alice Snail. Paul and I studied rock snakes, weather, and stars. There was no limit to our potential. I was playing at Keys Park. As I played, the bright skies began to grow darker, darker in a hurry. The warm breeze alternated with freezing gusts. I heard distant thunder. The wind blew a big drop of rain on my face and then another. And I decided I should probably walk home before I got caught in a shower. Sidebar. Almost as miraculous as the spider in the web, I've noticed children in Texas are born with the amazing ability to take the first roll of distant thunder, divide it by the size and temperature of the first drop of rain, and calculate within a very fine margin of error when the downpour will really start. I've seen boys on the baseball field take in that aforementioned data, look up at the sky and say, eh, we got time for two more batters. This was not the case that afternoon. As I walked, the rain started falling quicker and with greater intensity than anything I'd ever experienced. I picked up my pace, I started running, then the sky opened up, Thunder and lightning started crashing around me everywhere. I shifted to a full bore gallop. It was no question now of getting wet. I was drenched, and I still had five blocks to go to get to home. The sky continued to turn black. The wind ripped across the ground, and I was hit with the first piece of hail. It hurt. It made a red, swollen bruise on my leg, and hail started falling all around me. It was big, golf-ball-sized hail. I was terrified. 
I didn't know now if I was going to get home. I was running as hard as I could. I ducked under trees to block the barrage. Hey, I know that's dangerous too. In a thunderstorm, you don't run under a tree. But for me, the hail was scarier than being hit by lightning. I tore around the corner of our street. The hail was battering roofs and cars. It was bouncing up off the pavement and hitting me in the face. I covered my head with my hands, and every time a piece of round, hard ice hit my legs or shoulders, I felt like I'd been shot. I blasted through our front door. Paul was home taking a violin lesson with Mr. Schwartz, but the storm had everyone in a panic. As I was coming in, Mr. Schwartz was running out the back door. Paul had put his violin down and was running up and down the hallway, holding his little blue book of everyday weather and how it works. He was madly turning the pages. I stopped in the den, in the middle of the chaos, panting for my run, and suddenly my fear turned to joy as I looked out the patio window. My wind detector was moving. It was turning wildly in the Coke bottle. Success! The graduated rain gauge on the barbecue was overflowing. Our weather station was in full operation. It was wonderful to see. The patio was covered with fallen hail. Paul ran in with his book, and suddenly outside, everything stopped. The rain, the hail, the wind detector. Paul and I stopped. I looked around, and I was disappointed. I said to Paul, oh, it's over, but did you see at the wind detector it was working? Paul looked at me very seriously and said, Stevie, it's a tornado. The radio says we all have to take cover. It's touched down in the area. We don't have much time. The book says tornadoes always rotate counterclockwise. So we need to open the southeast window so the pressure won't destroy the house. I think that's back in Dad's room. With that, Paul ran back towards the bedrooms. A voice outside screamed, it's here, it's here. I walked into the kitchen. I stopped. Our pictures by the stove, the dog, and even my map of Russia were not just pink, but had turned dark, dark red. I continued. I walked out the back door, through the garage, out into the driveway. Mom, Dad, Barbie, and Mr. Schwartz were all staring straight ahead not more than a mile away. Right in front of us was a giant dark gray tornado snaking its way slowly towards us. It's funny. It all seemed to be silent except for maybe the sound of a distant train. There was no wind, no hail, no rain. It was all still except when the tornado snaked down and touched a house. Then there was an explosion and pieces of roof and walls were flung everywhere. The tornado was clearly moving in our direction. Inside, I could hear Paul desperately opening windows in Dad's bedroom. I couldn't move. I was fixated on the funnel. It was beautiful and awesome. Flying up in the air and then down again with terrible results. Explosions were coming closer and closer. The tornado looked like it was moving down Edgefield Street over by Cripple Creek. I said to Dad, shouldn't we get in the car and go? Dad said quietly, go where? In hindsight, I should have said the opposite direction, for starters, anywhere. That's why God invented the V8 engine, to get away from things like this. We would be the opposite of tornado chasers. But I was five, and I said nothing. I just stared at the storm moving closer and closer to us. It stopped within six blocks of our home, and then made a sharp turn to the right and headed for Keys Park, where I had just been playing. 
I heard the horrible sound of whistling and explosions traveling away from us at last. We were spared that day. It was the first of three encounters I had with tornadoes in my life, and it was the only time I ever saw one, up close. That storm was not called the biggest or the most lethal tornado Dallas ever had. It killed 10 people. It caused $4 million in damage, nothing by today's standards. But meteorologists note that it was famous because it was so visible. It happened in the middle of the day in a metropolitan area instead of in a cornfield in the middle of nowhere. Driving home from the lecture on dark matter, Paul smiled and looked over at me. He shook his head. He confessed that one of his lifelong regrets was that he never came out of the house to see the storm. He wanted to. He wished his entire life that his risk-reward ratio had been different. He was guilty of a common fault in man, too busy at looking at the weather book to see the weather. But it wasn't a fault in him. It was who he was. A recent study says our personalities are formed by the end of first grade, and people rarely change from the time they're five. That's what science will teach you. I grew up to be an actor, always ready to drop everything to face a new disaster. Paul grew up to be a doctor, and true to his calling, he spent those moments hoping to open the right window to save us from destruction. That was Everyday Weather and How It Works, a series of stories by Stephen Tobolowsky. Stephen, why don't you tell people how they can find you on the internet this week? Well, the best place to find me is at tobolowskyfiles.com. That's T as in Tom, O, B as in boy, O, L, O, W, S, K, Y, dot com. And there you could find out where to, <laughs> where to order birthday party, Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party. Find out all about the podcasts. Um, that would be the way to do it, David. And if you'd like to find more of my work, head on over to SlashFilm.com. Thank you guys so much for listening to this week's episode of The Tobolowski Files. We'll see you later. Adios.